Hello, you beautiful humans. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Mahamadou Al-Slahi, and this is an intense one. We're talking about surviving 14 years in Guantanamo Bay. Mahamadou is the subject of the film The Mauritanian, which you might have seen on Amazon Prime at the moment with Benedict Cumberbatch and Jodie Foster, and he's been called the most tortured man in Guantanamo Bay. Mahamadou lived for 14 years in Guantanamo. He was subjected to enhanced interrogation techniques, otherwise known as torture, sexually assaulted by prison officers, was force-fed food, waterboarded, subjected to a mock execution, and spent nearly 20 years away from his home country without being charged. This story is so intense. I, I don't even know... I can't really even put into words how it feels to hear so much suffering from one person. Um, it's very moving and it consists of almost a, a completely unbroken one-hour monologue of Mohamedou's right in the middle of the episode where he just takes us through the full story. Um, God, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to say about this. It is, it's crazy how brutal and raw and emotional and sad and insulting and inspiring all at the same time. And it's hard not to feel amazement at how positive and happy and forgiving and peaceful Mohamedou is after he's been through hell. We have so much to learn from someone who is able to deal with this much suffering and come out of it in the way that he has. I really hope that you enjoy it. This is something else entirely. If you are new here, or if you're a long-time listener, please go and hit the subscribe button. It makes me very happy indeed, and it ensures that you will never miss an episode when they are uploaded every Monday, Thursday, and Saturday. So just open your podcast app. Come on, take your thumbs for a walk. Go and press that subscribe button for me. But now, it's time for the wise and very, very, very wonderful Mohamedou Al-Slahi. Mohamedou, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Chris. I'm so happy. What does it feel like to have a movie made about your life? It's it's really like so like amazing, and uh, I still I'm still digesting because this is not in my wildest dream. I didn't dream I would have like a movie. Know about you know, I mean, how many people have a movie about their lives? You know, I don't know too many people. You know, I don't know anyone in person. You know, or in my surrounding, and it's just a very big blessing to have your story told on the big screen and to reach this big audience, especially in our world now. And it's not just any movie, right? It's Benedict Cumberbatch and Tamir Rahim and Jodie Foster and then you were contributing to the set design and the production and all sorts. This is A-level, right? A-list stuff. Absolutely. And 
I mean, Kevin also, Kevin won Oscars before. And uh, yes, and I was involved. I mean, I didn't push myself on anyone. He just kept calling me and asking me questions and I just kept like answering them. And uh, yeah, like you said, said also like, I also coached Taha Rahim on the accent and so on and so forth. It was, it was a lot of fun and pain at the same time. How accurate would you say the movie is to what happened? I mean, what we see in the movie is pretty accurate. No, except like Chris, you cannot put on screen like the first 70 days of sleeplessness. You cannot put that on the screen because you just need an actor who stays sleep w- without sleep for 70 days, consecutive days. And that's very painful. Take us through your story then. Why has a Mauritanian man had a movie made about his life? Uh, so this starts with very innocent phone call. It was like in late 98 or early 99. I don't remember. You know, because I only knew about the call years later. So, and my cousin called me. And actually, it was like a very innocent call. He asked me to wire some money to his father, who was very sick in Mauritania. And then I lived in Germany. It was very easy for me. And of course, I said, yeah, of course, I would do that. No problem. And, uh, but there was a problem with the call. So the call was made. From the uh, f- from a phone that belonged to UBL, and my cousin was uh, a friend of UBL. I mean, they found years later that he was not involved in the uh, uh, atrocious attack against uh, the United States on 9/11. But still, back then this was before 9/11, and everything I did after that was interpreted as a, as a vile act against the United States of America. Everything I said was interpreted in that way that I was, quote, unquote, a bad guy. And unbeknownst to me, I was, you know, subject to so many investigations that I didn't know about. And then all the investigations done in Germany and in Canada, they found out that there was no evidence I did really something. And then I was so scared when our imam, that is our priest in the mosque, when he told me that the German police, some kind of police, like very high level police, you know, like they came to him and they showed him my picture and then he laughed. He said, what do you want to know about this guy? They said, yeah, we have some bad report that he is a, he's a bad guy. He was laughing, he said, no, 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 I know him in person, he's a very good guy, he wouldn't hurt a fly. They said, that's what we think too, but there is a country, a country that thinks that he's a bad guy. He told me that and I just, I just panicked. I said, I cannot stay in this country, so. And I had already my, uh, my uh, landed immigrant status in Canada and I moved. I said, when I moved to Canada, Fresh start, no one knows me, nothing. I would, you know, finish college, find job. 
not fair, I already finished college, but I want to study like PhD. And that's it, that's what I did. And I was, it was so dumb because I didn't know that the intelligence, you know, agencies were so like connected and Canada was very close to the United States. So going there just proved the point of the United States that I was a bad guy. I was coming to Canada to help you. And as luck had it, I, one month after my arrival, about one month, a guy decided to cross the border by the name of Ahmed Rassam and kill innocent people. His name is Ahmed Rassam. And he was go, he, they, they said on the note that he went to the same mosque I did. And this all like pointed toward my person. You know, and then I don't know whether you saw this movie, very old movie called A Man with One Red Shoe by, by, uh, what's his name again? The guy, you know, cast away. Tom Hanks. So, yeah, Tom Hanks. So he, he was, you know, he was like suspected of being a Russian agent. And then everything was he was doing was interpreted that way. And it was very funny. So, and then Canadian came to my house, trying tried to find out what was the deal. They couldn't find anything, but U.S. said, this guy is too smart. He doesn't leave any, right? We need to lure him to a place where there is no law, no rules, no gloves, and then we can get our way with him. Then they called my country, the intelligence of my country, and they told them, how can we get him back to Mauritania? And then they went to my family, to my mother. They said, you should call him back. Your son is in big trouble and we need, he needs to come back so we clear his name. She called me and she said she was sick. That was January of 2000. And I just start like, you know, making arrangement. I bought my ticket everything. And I had a feeling, you know, I will be very exposed, but, you know, I think we are driven a lot by emotions. You know, like, I tell you an example, because I think I'm a very, like, reasonable person. I'm a person of reason, you know, I believe in science, everything. Even though, like, I'm a religious person at the same time, kind of, you know. But sometimes emotion, emotions overwhelm me. And the other day, like, several weeks ago, they called me, they said, your sister has COVID-19. And then I said, COVID-19, then I, I said, I want to visit her. The doctor said, you cannot visit her. So this is like stupid. And then, because it's so dangerous. And, and then I went and then I bought some like uh, fruits, everything. And I went anyway to visit my sister. And then in, in midways, I was like crying in my, in my heart saying, this is my sister. What, what use of me being so healthy if my sister is so sick? And this is so like, so like emotional and kind of stupid too, but I like willingly, 
risk this very dangerous side, sickness, to see my sister and to be beside her and show her life of support, you know. Of course, I took precautions, put the mask, everything, and, uh, but, but I'm just showing you that I went, you know, and I know there was a risk, but this was my mother who called me, she is sick. And I was picked up in the car. I was interrogated for five days. Then a said, there is no evidence against this guy. We cannot hold him. So you need, I said, I'm going back to Canada. I knew I'm going to be screwed really bad. So I said, I'm going back to Canada. The US said, no, you cannot go back to Canada. And they forced me into a plane. So now Senegal is like not, so was like more cooperating with them. They said, you are not going back to Canada, but they took my passport and they put me on a special plane and then sent me to Mauritania. I was interrogated for about one month in all. And then Mauritania came back to me and said, there is no evidence against this guy. So he, what should we do? And then they said, release him, but he cannot leave the country. So later on, they took my passport, my papers, and I said, you know what? I'm just going to you know, survive. Because we have, we cling to life so much, you know? Like, no matter, like, if you get abused, you still want to live. If you get, like, I just, you know, we just try to use our resources. And I was, like, highly educated, and I found a job. And I said, you know, maybe one day they will find, find out I didn't do anything to them. They will let go of it. You know, and I was like working long hours, you know, and barely making the ends meet. You know, this was like late 2000, and it, the, uh, there was this like uh, bubble burst, I think, from uh, IT. And, uh, and we just, we didn't do well. The company, you know, went down, everything, and I went to another company. And 9-11 happened. You know, 9-11, that was really, really bad time. And I was kidnapped. I was put in a plane by a special team, some of whom Jordanians. I know that because they spoke to me. And then some were in masks, two were in masks. I couldn't know who they were. So, and uh, this was with the uh, collaboration and conspiracy of my own government in violation of the constitution that foresees that no citizen can be overhanded to another country, not to mention innocent citizens. Uh, at least see, there is no like evidence against them, I mean, to cut them some slacks. And, uh, yeah, and I saw death so many times. I remember the plane landing in Cyprus. I heard it in, over the phone. <laughs> and uh, I was wishing and hoping some custom agent or something board the plane and see me and I would say, I am, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, please arrest me, arrest me. <laughs> you know, and, but no one, no one shows up. You know, I felt death so many times and I wasn't, uh, you know, I'm afraid of death, but I'm more afraid of dying itself, you know. 
you know, you know, like believing in afterlife and the possibility that your afterlife wouldn't be as good. It's a very like scary things. But dying because I saw my, 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 the uncle of my mother. I don't know that what that called in English. You know, and I saw him dying. You know, he's very, he was very strong man. He was a teacher, and I saw him withering away getting weaker and weaker, and he couldn't take care of his own business. He was a very proud man. And then he started to smell because he couldn't take shower, you know. And I saw that as a child, and this life was so, I will never forget that. So, and I, I, I was like picturing how much torture is going to take for me to pass away, to die. And there, then I stayed in Jordan for eight months, horrific month, you know. Like, I wasn't like beaten, I was beaten only two times, but like, just living in the fear, the prospect of torture, day in, day out, for eight months, it's really very heavy, you know. And the problem like, when they start torture sessions, I could hear people like crying and so, and then, it was just like someone piercing your ears. And then I start to uh, to uh, plug my ears with my, you know, with my hands. But I hear louder when I plug my ears because the brain creates these sounds, horrific sounds. And I cannot describe to living in pain how painful it is, you know. And there is no end. And there is no, like, I remember the day I was taken, you know, before I was put in the place. And I just came back from work. You know, I was doing installation in the presidency, out of all places. They want to uh, revamp their network, and they took our company. So I was the engineer who was in charge. I came back, it was Ramadan. Ramadan meaning fasting month. And I came back 4 p.m. I think it was around 4. Only my mother was home. Like my sisters, brothers, only she and me. And came, you know, in plain clothes. Said, you need to come with us. She told me, Muhammadu in whisper. They take, you know why? I said, no. He said, because of the TV, you watch TV. She doesn't want me to be involved in politics or discussion or anything. And then they took me. I said, no, no, it's going to be all right. I'm coming back. And then they took me. And then I was watching her in the rearview mirror as she disappeared, getting smaller and smaller. And I never forget her holding the prayer beads, frantically praying. Until I turned right, I never saw my mother again, ever. And the thing that I never realized, I never appreciated the pain she, went, she was going through. Because I never had a son. I only had a son like two years ago, Ahmed. And I cannot even imagine someone taking Ahmed away from me and taking him away with no reason. Like, this is not like Canada or like a Western country, a free country where the police 
has to show cause. Meaning they said, we are taking your son because of one, two, three, four. This is painful still, but one can understand that you are in a society and the society has rules and you have to respect the rules if you want to live in the society. And, but nothing like that. Same thing in Jordan. I was not allowed to see the Red Cross. I was not allowed to call my embassy, nothing. I was under the total mercy of people who work in the darkness, total darkness, away from podcasts, away from internet, away from TV, everything. Democracy dies in darkness. So after that, they came to me one day. And then one of the guards threw a trash bag, a black trash bag, one of the heavy duty, through the bean hole. The bean hole is prison parlance for a very small uh, window, like very small windows where you can barely fit your hand, where they give you food and they close and communicate with you, the guards. And then they throw the, uh, the trash bag inside my cell and say, you're going home. Chris, I cannot describe to you my feeling. It's, I just start like crying uncontrollably, you know, just like a child. I was in a hole, in a pit for eight months. Of course, I lost count because later on I knew that I didn't know the days, anything, even though I tried to keep them. And I lost like 10 days in all. And I don't know where they went. And, and because sometimes I didn't know days and nights because I was put in the cellar underground. And, and I was saying, now, what came to me? I was saying, I was a pure person. I was a good person in prison. Because there was no opportunity to do bad things in prison. Like bad thing, I mean like bad mouthing, making like unsavory comments, like criticizing your mother's food and so on and so forth. And I was like, I felt I was close to God. You know, and you know, prison is like death. You know, this is like another life. But now I'm going back to life, how would I do in life, would I be a still a good person in real life? And then I, I came, and then I went to the bathroom, but I didn't want to tell them I went to the bathroom, because I didn't want them to change their minds. So I, I didn't want to go to the bathroom. I said, let's go, and now they put me in a plane to Mauritania, and I will just take, go to the bathroom and do whatever I want to do. You know, I'm not going to screw this up. I came there, they took me, all blindfolded, and you cannot see anything. And then they took off the blindfold. They start to give me back my belonging, like my driver license, some money I had, you know, and ID card, stuff like that. And, uh, and they told me to sign money because they, they told me the content and I was shaking like this. I couldn't like 
I couldn't control my shaking. And then I, I, I took the pen and signed. I didn't count anything. I just said, whatever. I agree, whatever, because I'm going home. I don't care about anything else. And then I saw the date, 31st of July, 2002. So that's when it hit me that I had another date in my head. And uh, no, I, I saw 20th, but in my head it was 31st, sorry. And then I knew I wasn't really in my right, right state of mind. And then they took me and they laid me on like a stretcher. And then they pushed me into a, into a some kind of truck because I could feel the moving. And then I heard the, after I don't know, maybe 30 minutes or so, I heard the roaring of engines. I know I was in, 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 in airport, in some kind of airport. And I, I, I was just, I was almost exploding because I, I need to go to the bathroom really bad, so bad. And I was like, it's so painful when you need to go to the bathroom and you cannot. And they start to play music, you know, to just to, uh, to dumb down my hearing so I don't hear them talking, conversing. And I love the music really, it was Abdul Halim Hafez. It's very legendary Egyptian uh, singer. And it felt like I'm back to life, I'm back to life. And then it took a long time. I don't know, at least one hour, at least. If not hours, I, I don't remember, but very long time. And then someone start to touch me and then you know, like, you know, men handle me, like, touching me everywhere, and then they start to cut open my clothes with scissors. Stripped me naked completely, except for my blindfold and my uh, earplugs. He start to put me in diapers. And then it dawned on me that I was not going home, you know. I was going to prison, very bad prison life. And it came back to me, those like movies and those like documentaries I watched in Germany about uh, rough American prisons. And I was telling myself, I'm not going back. This is it, this is like, I'm going to die in a prison in the US. I'm going to be forgotten, you know, I'm from Africa, this is bad for me. I am an Arab, which is very bad, and I'm a Muslim. Three strikes I could count in my head. And I wouldn't be treated fairly. And I was aware of the anger too of the United States. And I just was like praying that my family doesn't see me ever on TV paraded in chains, you know, because that would hurt them so badly. And then I took it upon myself from that moment on. If for some like miracle, if I go back to life, I will be a good person. Why? Because I start to regret 
what I did in my life because that was like a moment that I was living life. And the only thing I regretted is not being nice enough. Why did I criticize my mother when she, I didn't like her food? Why did I make this comment? You know, why wasn't I nice? Why wasn't I courteous to people enough? And uh, I took it upon myself to be nice. Actually, I never like regretted not having money. I never regretted not having this very hot chick. I never regret any of that. I never regret not having a house. None of that. It didn't matter to me. What mattered to me? Why didn't? Why wasn't I nice? Because nice, you don't need money to be nice. You don't need wealth. You don't need anything. You don't need a look. You don't need a background to be nice. You just be nice, you know. And uh, a lot of people like ask me like, "Oh, uh, you said you forgave people everything." This is a bunch of BS because I wouldn't forgive people. But I would say you didn't have my life. Because to me, I know what matters, you know, and I'm doing myself a favor. You don't know how much favor I'm doing myself and how, like, selfish I am. You know, you don't know how selfish I am. I'm very much, you know, uh, serving my own interests when I say I forgive people, you know, because I want to be a nice person. And to be honest to you, you know, like, Chris, you know, you know, I like, uh, Tony Robbins, you know, I like his speeches a lot, and so motivational speaker from the US. I read his book, everything. And some of the good thing he said that stuck with me, that your biography, bio, biography does not dictate your future, you know, like, you know, you can always have a, the future you want. And this is all like easier said than done, you know. It's very easy like for you and me to say, I, I, I want to be a nice person and I will be a nice person. It's not easy because like circumstances like keep, keep pushing your button all the time. And you have always to center yourself, come back and say, how can I be nice without hurting myself? You know, because that's like the uh, threshold. And so they put me in this diaper they took me out and uh, they put me in clothes after that. They took me out, they stretched me on a stretcher in a plane. The plane started to move, took off, you know, you know that by your ears when they crack, pop. I was you know, just like feeling so bad for myself, you know. You know, why, why this is happening, you know. I, I just, I don't know what was going through my head, but I want to pee so bad. And the diaper are for peeing, but I couldn't pee in diapers. I couldn't, this is not, like, you know, I say something, I say, uh, Subconscious bitch. You know, because with the way we were raised, you know, has so much bearing and it's almost like a burden, you know, on us. 
you know, I always, always like, you know, the way I was raised, it's not, you have always to be very private when you want to pee. You have to be away from people. You have to be in certain place to do that. You know, and now I know this, this does not work because I have to pee, but I couldn't. The plane kept flying, 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 you know. And they kept like, to make it work, they kept like, you know, like uh, sprinkling somehow water in my mouth because they want to keep me hydrated. You know, this is like a kidnapping team. They know what they were doing. I was not their first client, so. And they were not rough with me. They did not beat me. Did not treat me rough. Even the guy who was like giving me water, he was just like tapping like nicely on my shoulder. Like first time like I, uh, I feel that someone is feeling my pain somehow. But there is no talking. And uh, I'm, there is something in me, you know, and I say this, share this with you, Chris, that just it dawned on me that I'm very easily subdued. Like a normal person would say, guys, I need to pee. But I never said that, you know. I was like mesmerized in this world of silence and darkness, you know. I couldn't see anything, it was total darkness. And no one was talking. And then I was completely integrated in this like very weird world and I accepted it to my own detriment, you know. And then I was just dying, you know. And then, because, you know, when you start like treating people in this way, like, this is not even, didn't start torture, but we are very vulnerable. And I'm saying this because later on I learned that two detainees died, two I know of died on record. And so I think after five hours or six hours, I don't know, I was just in my head. Plane start to lose altitude. You know, I could, I could feel that. My whole body could feel that. And then it touched down. And then I was taken, and then I was put in a, in chopper. I know that because I heard like it was so loud, and the way, you know. It must be a chopper, so there was no other way. And then they put me in a truck. Truck was good because they sat me. And then two people pushed against me and I felt the worth of a human being in a very long time. Eight months, the first time I feel the worth of a human being. And I was so cold. And then they spoke a language I never heard. I start hearing them. 
because they spoke very loudly. This was like some of the Afghani languages that I was not familiar with. And then I thought about it was the Philipp Philippines because I don't know, just in my head, I said, I know there is the word like military base in Philippines. I was thinking that I was going to land in Germany, Rammstein, and then taken. No. But this was not German language because I understand German, obviously, because I studied in Germany. So, and then I said, this is Philippines. So, and then they took me and then they, uh, they set me on my knees. And then for the first time in a long time, I peed like a champion. <laughs> Because I felt alone. And when I peed, you know, I was a free man. I didn't care about where I was. I didn't care what happened to me. Just the relief of the pain. That's just like giving birth, you know, after a very long labor. And they start like to strip me naked. And then they took the uh, blindfold. You know, like your instinct when they strip you naked, you always put your hands on your private parts automatically. You know, and then they start to, uh, you know. Well, the weirdest thing that I saw, like they come to me and then they pull my hair. You know, later on, I, I, I understand it's for DNA testing. And uh, so, and... Uh, they start interrogation like, you know, put me back in the blindfold. And then they start interrogation like destroying chairs beside me very loud. You know, just like in movies. You know, but they didn't beat me. They just like were asking me stupid questions because they were not briefed properly who I was and where I came from that. I think the CIA plane just dropped me. And then there were like a lot of different agencies and private contractors and everyone like everyone wants a piece of you everyone wants to be the the guy who is like cracking the bad terrorist quote unquote and because they were asking about bin laden where he was and where mullah omar mullah omar is the last president of uh, Afghanistan, and I didn't know there was a war. I didn't know they took over Kabul. I didn't, I, I didn't know none of that, but their question just gave me information after information. I just like watching the BBC. So where did they go? Because they thought I was picked up from the battlefield. That's to the, at least they must have thought that. I was saying, what? Uh, I don't know. I swear, I don't know. It's just very broken, no resistance, nothing. And they took me to this room, very alone, like with carpet, one room, and then they took me to another room. And 
I I saw I I don't know how, but I saw the the feet of a detainee moving, and I was oh my God, this guy being tortured. I'm sure you know, you know, just like crazy stuff coming to my head, and then there was no bathroom in the in the cell, so I peed on the floor, everything on the floor, and. They took me for interrogation. Again, must have been night. You know, those light people is makeshift prison in Bagram. Makeshift. You know, but you know, Americans like they always like wherever they go, they build this little America right away. So I could hear like rock and roll music, you know, people talking very loud you know, and uh, eating all the time, all the time. There is no, like, no break, you know, some kind of, like, uh, energy bars, you know, or drinking. There is no pause, you know, not like sitting there, okay, let's talk about something. No, we have to eat something. And that's the first thing, like, that came to my mind. And I was, like, very curious about, and I, just, I hear a lot about Americans. I see a lot about Americans on TV, on movies, you know. But I never really met Americans. You know, this was like my. So they sat me there. There was this very young Arabic translator. You know, he's native-born American. You know, I could tell from the accent he 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 is not a native Arab speaker, obviously. And then she asked me, what languages do you speak? It's a standard question because they want to organize their resources. I said, I said, and then I said like German, French, and so everybody was what? I said, yeah, I speak German. They said, first lie. And then they called a guy, CIA guy, by the name, name of Michael, German, um, America. And then he starts, you know, he starts speaking German with me. And I responded to him and he told him he speak better German than I. So my English was not good enough to carry on an interrogation. So it was very basic. Yes, no, and so on. And then he told me one thing I never forget. He looked at me and say, Freiheit. Macht frei. Uh, Wahrheit macht frei. Wahrheit macht frei. Meaning the truth will set you free. When he said that, I had this picture recalled in my head. Arbeit macht frei. Work will set you free. And I never forget this sign because I saw it in on German documentaries, everything over and over and over. And I knew the people for whom this sign was meant did not did not go fry, free. I mean, they never they, they they died actually. And that was like a very bad omen for me. And I didn't say anything. Uh, they assigned me to him. He was a very nice guy, you know. 
like nice for the circumstances because when you say nice or bad, it's always compared to something else. Because the first thing he did to me, they give me your password. That's the, that's the friendliest thing that they could tell you. They come take you, Chris, to the police, said, you are on Instagram, you are on YouTube, I need your password. I need to see everything you have. You would be like, what? Who, who are you? <laughs> and then I told him, you know, to be honest, I know I will end up giving him my password. I know there is no way around it. And I also, as a, as an IT person, I also know they have way to see everything without me giving them my password. Back then I was Yahoo email, you know. And I said, I start to get, you know, to get him on my side. I said, you know, this is, a, you know, get the law. This is my private. He said, look, I give you two options. Either you give it to me or I take it by force. And I said, okay. Then I wrote him my password. You know, my password is very easy. First name of my wife followed by her birthday. Very easy. And I never had like strong password or anything because there was nothing interesting in my email or anything. You know, but it's so painful, you know, to see your like privacy violated, you know. And there is nothing you can do. This is like mundane to a lot of people, but to me, it's not mundane. That someone like tells you, this, this is like just, uh, if someone tells you, Chris, take off your clothes. And they would say, no, I won't. And then they force you to take off your clothes. Because this is your privacy, this is your home, this is the door closed. But anyway, and then he started explaining to me the process, and uh, he told me one thing. He said, you are guilty, even if you are not guilty, because there is no way out of this. He said. So make peace, he said, with that fact. And he also told me that I was going to be taken to Guantanamo Bay, which I didn't know. And he explained to me, and I was so happy, because this is like he said, it's under American control. And I want to be under American control because I grew up, when I was younger, I used to watch Law and Order and, uh, and Married with Children. So Americans are funny and Americans respect the rule of law. So I was not afraid that they would find out anything against me because I didn't do anything to them. And they took me to Guantanamo Bay and like, First, about nine months, it was like interrogation. It was very painful, like, but I was not heavily tortured or anything. But they decided I was really, I really need to talk to them, they thought, to confess to something. They put me on this, like, enhanced interrogation technique, a euphemism for torture. And starting from May of 2003, I was officially rolled in in the program. And it was really painful. Like, no sleeping. You know, 
and interrogation 24/7 sexual assault on three occasions at least i remember i was beating until i broke my ribs this all on record and my gallbladder was destroyed later on they had to take me to the hospital and remove it and uh, i was just a mess i was just a mess but chris when they this all didn't like quote unquote break they one day they came to me before the boat ride the infamous boat ride where they took me in a boat and you know drowned me and and beat me all kind of beating they came to me and said we are going to arrest your mother put her in men only prison and there is nothing we can do if she get assaulted and then i lost it i i said i was like whatever you want i will do and there is no limit no limit to my to what i would confess and then they like coached me you know they said like let's say you would make an an attack against cn tower because they want to make it logical with the time because i was in canada and i never heard of cn tower by the way with all due respect and i never been to toronto in my life i said yes then i start writing and they said you need to write it and i wrote it i put the names of my friend as my accomplices he said you need to sign it and i did sign it and this was like so like weird because they want to put me on uh, death put me to death they need very solid like confession because i was the first candidate for the penalty and the guy came back to me start like first sergeant first sergeant shelly came to me said you know you are a good guy because you confessed everything you can negotiate like 30 years and so and i was like listening i mean i mean what world i was think what world does he live in you know <laughs> and and like he was like giving me the good news the good news to him is me staying in prison for 30 years instead of being put to death and i was just like mechanically just sitting with my head yes thank you so much thank you and he was saying how in america they respect people who confess everything and i was like yes yes and then after all this biggest challenge this is the irony that my confession was very big challenge to the intelligence community because it contradicted like everything they know they know i didn't do anything they just wanted me there to give them information about my cousin about people i know about about people who go to the mosque etc and they never thought i did like uh, i planned to attack like 
at least the CIA knows that I didn't do that. And the FBI, they just, the guy who was lead investigator in Millennium Plot, you know, he just told the Canadian press, La Press, the other day, he said he went in person to Guantanamo Bay and told them, Mohammed has nothing to do with nine with uh, millennium plot. You can do something else because I know this case because I'm interrogating the guy, the main guy. They have this obsession, you know. So they know, but the problem they don't they don't exchange information. So the the, the person who was like interrogating me, Richard Zuli, a cop from Chicago. He was a private contractor. He was working, you know, he was uh, he was a private contractor hired by uh, DOD, you know, that is the uh, the uh, defense department of defense, so like the military, you know, and he just wanted results. Turned out he was a very bad cop indeed because he put innocent people behind bar, some of whom 20 years turned out to be innocent. So that's his, you know, his magic that he could break up like innocent people and make them confess something they didn't do and put them in prison. So he was not important to the CIA to share with him information or the FBI. And I was not important to the CIA or the FBI to save me and said, hey, hey, this is an innocent guy, what what you do? So it was not important to them. So, and then they they came back to him, they said, this is BS, you know, this is, he didn't do this. So. And he almost went crazy. And he he came back to me, he said, they wanted you to make like, uh, lie detector test. And I was so scared because I know how it works. I said, but when I do it, the confession will go a waste because I cannot lie. On. And then he said, no, 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 okay, okay, just, you know, he was like very upset, but he said, no, no, you just take, just give the answers, truth. And then I said, okay. They put me on this lie. I detected and I cleared myself 100%. And I passed. I said, I didn't do anything. I never done anything. I never thought about doing anything against And this like put a hold on my case like forever. So they never took me out of torture, but they start like, Tapering it. I was going to ask how they slowed down from the enhanced interrogation back into back into normal life. Before we go on a little bit further, I just want to go back to the sleep deprivation. How do they deprive you of sleep during that seventy day enhanced interrogation period? Okay. So they have four shifts, three shifts of interrogation, and then they just take you. When the next shift uh, when the, this shift is done, they start a new shift. They take you out. And if you go back to your cell, the time you are in your cell, they keep banging on your door. 
Okay, the first 70 days was like that. Did not stop. I, after that I bought, I lost consciousness and I don't know what happened in that period. Like two or three weeks, I don't know anything. But they came back to sleep deprivation, different technique. They call it water diet. They give me water every, like about two hours or one hour. They force me to drink like three quarter of a liter. And then I keep just going to the bathroom all the time, all the time, no sleep. And I asked Yoda one time, why don't they just like keep me awake standing? He said, no, it's more painful with water because you feel like we are not, we are not doing things, but you just cannot sleep, you know, because giving you water is a good thing. So they make you the architect of your own torture. Correct. Correct. And he's right. It's so painful. Like every time you close your eyes, you want to go to the bathroom. And I developed a very, very, like, this habit, very painful habit that even though there is no water, I keep waking up during night, going to the bathroom, sitting. Sometimes no water, nothing. I don't want to be, but just sitting there. This took me many years, you know, in prison to get somehow under control. And now, when I get depressed, it comes back to me right away that I want to go to the bathroom. The first reaction, I want to go to the bathroom. And uh, yeah, feel free to interrupt me because I'm going on this <laughs> no. monologue. I am. Um, what's it like being sleep deprived for 70 days? You become a different person, I mean. Like, You live in a different world, like a dimension. You are just waiting to die, kind of. And I took sleep for granted, like before. Just so. And now, after that, I understand what when people in pain they cannot sleep. I hundred percent understand. You know how painful it is. You know, we just need sleep. We just we just need to take a break from like working. And but we just like. I was just like, almost like an animal. I didn't even think about it. I just go to sleep, that's it. I have like a magazine near my bed or something to read, you know, that put me to sleep. 
then I just go to sleep and then, you know, wake up in the morning fresh and so happy. And, but now I'm very conscious. I said, now I'm going to sleep. This is a really good thing. When I'm not depressed, I feel so good about it. Like the, my favorite place is the house, my bed, you know. That's why I insist to have a TV in my bedroom. And this is a big fight with my wife because she doesn't <laughs> want TV. But when she is not around, I put back the TV. <laughs> <laughs> but now she knows. Now she knows that if she watches this podcast, she's going to know that you're sneaking the TV back into your bedroom. Absolutely. And I, I, I'm not going to be controlled by anyone. So. <laughs> You're not going to apologize. Um, no, the, the cells were kept really cold as well, right? This was another, another method to try and break spirit. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there are like other technique, like they, I didn't mention, of course, because this was all very well orchestrated and studied like uh, torture techniques. And I have to say, you know, Chris, American people are not like that. American people are good people. They're very generous people. You know, they're very, uh, uh, you know, they have a lot of empathy and they love people. They love life. They love to live. You know, we just, we just, there is something I don't have any answer to. Why do like good people engage in very bad behavior, you know, to get along and to go along with other people, you know. You know, this is like human, like, unfortunately, is our nature, whether you are Christian, Muslims, you know, atheists, Buddhists, or whatever. We know that happens to all people. They always engage in horrific stuff, at least by omission or not, like reporting, you know, and go along. And uh, so they, uh, you, you, you were talking about the cold room. The cold room is really very painful because I have only like the, uh, the uh, uh, prison uniform and overall, no, two pieces, sorry, two pieces. And there is nothing under them, nothing. Light, and then they put me in this cold room they crank up the AC that they have there, and I just keep shaking. And I talk to Ronica, because I always try to negotiate my way out of torture. I tell them, you are doing some bad thing to me, I didn't do anything. And then I told Ronica, you're killing me. Who's, sorry, who's Ronica? Ronica is a Navy lieutenant who was a part of the team. And she was like the person who who was like the nicest in a way because she smiled sometimes. And, uh, you know, so I give you a very good wisdom. If a girl smiles, she's not going to give you her number necessarily. So, so she just smiled and I thought this is a good person. So I, I said, you are killing me. I'm dying. She said, no, you are not going to die because we have doctors who have everything. She was very wrong because, you know, you know, Rahman Gul, Rahman Gul died in the cold room. 
and and Dali War died in the beating. It took him only 24 hours, you know, and he died. And because we are human beings, we are very, you know, it takes so much to save one's life, but so little to take out a life. And this is like us. Was that Lieutenant the person who cried when someone came in and took you out of the interrogation room? There's a scene in the movie where one of the interrogators, who I think is a female, another group come in and take you away, and this is for the mock execution, which I, I think I want you to get into. Is that the lady, the one that smiled at you? No. That was Mary. She was also, you know... I mean, she she participated in torture, and especially like sexual assault. But she was always confused, and uh, she was not sure she was doing the right thing because she kept like talking to me. Said, "You know what? We don't give up because this is like we don't care if the world doesn't like us." But and then I know this is not healthy for us, but we're doing it anyway. So she was very like conflicted, you know, because she, as if she was like trying to convince herself she's doing the right thing. And she came back to me after this episode, like you said, of mock execution and waterboarding. It's. Uh, She came to me. First, they stopped her because that was a very bad behavior, like to them, like showing like any kind of compassion. Compassion was a red line. But they brought her, I don't know how many months, but they brought her back and she said she was so happy that I cleared my name, that I, she was really happy, you know, and she watched with me a movie called Black Hawk Down. She brought it, you know. Just another movie showing American greatness and bravery and just the, the right kind of movies. And uh, I was not actually watching the movie. I was watching the reaction, her reactions to the movie and that of the guard. I just want to know how this propaganda like <laughs> works on people, you know, like, you know, you know, a guy told me last night, I was invited to Iftar, an old person, a wise person from this country, he told me, he told me, I need a mirror to see my face. Because my face is so close to me, I cannot see it without stepping back. And you know, American people have a lot to be proud of. American people are very inventive. They are the most powerful country in the world. And they never lost a war in the last, like, I don't know, since the Civil War. And uh, yes, it's, it's, very, it's very hard to, to see themselves as, like, just regular human being and be down to earth 
everything, you know. I'm a Mauritanian, and in Mauritania, we think we are the best country in the world. And you say Mauritania, no one knows what Mauritania is. So, let alone Americans. So, and I was watching like Black Hawk Down. Black Hawk Down is about American uh, soldiers in uh, in Somal, Somal in Somalia. And uh, yes, just they showing that they were fighting alone without anyone helping them, people stabbing them in the back. And but the question that popped to my head: What are you doing in Somalia? This is very far from home. So that, but I couldn't say anything. I couldn't criticize. I just was watching, and Mary was telling me, "Look, look, those brave people," and. So, you know, those Marines, and everything is nice. You know, the, the movie was, the cinematography was good, and American people look very handsome, very well-dressed, and uh, the Pakistani guy who wouldn't give them uh, assistance, the bad guy, he didn't look good, he had a very bad accent, he couldn't even speak English. You know, this is all like, you know, going you know, on the side of American people, you know, the good people, you know, the beautiful people, you know, the well-dressed people, the people who go everywhere to save freedom. And, and I, yeah, that's why I was watching uh, Staff Sergeant Mary and not the movie. Just seeing if the hypocrisy was registering on her face at any point. <laughs> you said that. I'm not going with that. Far, well, that's but fine because I'm I'm British, so I can say whatever I want. Okay, I you, you are the smart guy. Correct. I know that. <laughs> I heard that some of the guards also suffered from PTSD after they'd worked at Guantanamo Bay. And obviously we're seeing the level of conflict here. Some of the interrogators, some of the people that were looking after you, even during the process, they're being conflicted about their own motivations, about why they're doing what they're doing, whether they should be doing it. And that doesn't surprise me. I remember thinking afterwards, would I be able to would I be able to willfully do something which after the event would give me PTSD? But then I realized that's what war is. Soldiers willfully go to war, they sometimes don't realize what they're doing in the heat of the battle, and then afterwards that's when they, they pay for it and that's when the PTSD comes. And I can kind of see how that would occur with the guards, but I can also see how they would be conflicted as well. Absolutely. You know, I remember this young man by the name of uh, Jedi. His name is Jedi. Uh, he, he came to me, you know, and he was a good guy. And aside from participating in torture and so, and he gave me cookies, you know, no, no, not cookies, muffin, muffin. You know, I remember this blueberry muffin is my favorite. And he, he smuggled them to me. And he just comes to me, and then he just put them, open the bean hole and put them and go away. And then I take them and I ate them. And then he started, it was forbidden to talk to me, you know. And then he came to me when there was no one around or when his friend, always two guards, like watching me all the time, all the time. Light doesn't go out, 
all the time. And uh, you know, I just want your audience to appreciate life, to appreciate like having a bedroom and being able to put off the light. And no one is watching them. They go to the bathroom, no one is watching them. They change their clothes, no one is watching them. Everything I did was watched and recorded for the future. So American could take out now and put it on TV, national TV. So, and just thinking about it makes me appreciate life and appreciate privacy. And he came to me one day, I told him, Jeda, I want to ask you a question. He said, yeah. I said, why did you force me? Why did you prevent you from praying by force? And you know, this is like, you know, you are a Christian and so. But he said, he told me, yeah, I know I'm going to hell, but what do you want me to do? I was like, but you are in a free country. You know, you, your country, you are a free man. Like, I understand if you're dictatorship, but he said, yeah, but if I don't do this job, they give me a shitty job. You know, he says, take me and this is a good job. Like, I don't know why it is good, but I think it pay, pays more, I believe. And then we end up, after my release, he ended up contacting me, contacting me. He, he, he's the one who initiated contact. All of the guards initiated contact. I never contacted anyone because I, I don't want them to think I'm trying to uh, locate them or anything. So all of the guards. And like you said, all of them were very like, they showed contrition and they want, they apologized to me and uh, they, uh, they uh, they really hurting a lot, you know, because it's just not normal that you inflict pain on other people unless you are very sick. And then you think you're gonna be free after that. I don't think, unless you are a psychopath, you are going to suffer pain. The entry price to hell isn't that high if all it is is the difference between $15 an hour and $30 an hour. That's quite a cheap <laughs> entry price to get yourself into hell. Committed uh, to sure. eternal damnation for the sake of $15 an hour. I know, I know. You know, it's, it, it's amazing. But unfortunately, like, like I said, this is a cross-cultural phenomenon that we as a human being, and I know your show concentrate on the big picture, you know, how and when we d don't learn from each other, we cannot grow, you know. And one of the good things, one of the very big lessons, you know, I was very like local in my thinking. You know, I'm, I'm going to be very upfront with you. So I thought, okay, I am, you know, like look at us, our culture, Muslim who are the best people. I'm in Africa, Arab, African, best people. And I always looked at the interests of Muslim and Arab. But when I went to this painful experience, the vast majority of people who stood by me, who showed compassion, are not Muslim. You know, they're Christian, they're Jewish people, and they're 
none with no denomination at all. And then I thought, okay, I need to look at us as human beings instead of force-fitting people in uh, in uh, very narrow identity, you know, because I don't believe that if you say a Muslim, this is an identity that is like enough description, but Muslim could be a man, could be a woman, could be a liberal, could be a conservative, could be black, could be white, could be feminist, could be non-feminist, could be a European, could be non-European, African, could be a like, uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, so on and so forth. And when you start like counting the things that uh, that we share, you and I as human beings, even though we grow up in a very different circumstances, it's, we will find so many identities that we share, you know, that could like prevent conflict and promote understanding and peace. After the enhanced interrogations finished and the results of the lie detector test came through, it turns out that they know now, the US government know that you're not guilty. You're held for a further nine years without charge. You go through this entire litigation process. You release your book and then you eventually get out. So not only have you been through before Guantanamo, all of this horrible treatment at the hand of Jordanians and you're in Cyprus and all of this other stuff, you go through Guantanamo, you go through the enhanced interrogation, then that's dragged out for nearly another decade. Then you finally get released. How is it that you don't have resentment or hatred towards that situation? You know, Chris, I saw death many times. I faced death many times. And the only regret, the only thing I regretted when I was about to die was not being nice. You know, not being nice. That's the only thing I regretted. I didn't regret not having money. I didn't regret not being a bad ass, not having money, not marrying this very hot girl. The only thing I regretted, not being nice. And I took it upon myself to be as nice uh, as nice as possible to Why? people, make a difference, because that would make me happy, and that because everybody will die, I mean, one day, and I want, I want to go in peace and as a happy person. I don't want to have regret when I am on my deathbed, and today, you know. I met you, you know, and so I want you to have good memory about me. That's all I want. And I don't want fake memory. I want you to have good memory said, I can only think good thing about this guy. Because we have in our tradition, we have a saying, say, uh, in hadith, that's the, uh, the, the saying of our prophet, people decide who go to heaven. That's a saying. People decide who go to heaven. Because their testimony are the one who, that takes you to heaven. And I want good testimony. Not fake, not faking like niceness. No. I want to be nice because I give you an example. People who hurt me the most, one of the people who hurt the most is Richard Zuli. 
a lieutenant from Chicago. Very known. Look him up, you find him. He's an old man today. Very angry man. I don't want him to suffer because nothing good is going to come out of his, him suffering at all. I won't get any money. I won't get any status. I don't get any power when he gets, when he suffers. And I hate to see people suffering anyway. And you know, there is this girl, I think she, she is Canadian Lebanese. And she said, I forgive you, not because you deserve forgiveness or you ask for forgiveness, but because I want to live in peace. And it's very hard to find forgiveness in, in, for someone who hurt you so badly. And this is for everyone. I mean, look in your life, look in your friend's life. A very bad breakup, someone who betrayed your trust. This is very hard to forgive, you know. But when you come to terms, you know, with that, and when you decide to forgive, it's just so rewarding. Because, I mean, people called me, and people, you know, are like, ask me as if I was a doctor because they want me to help them heal. And this makes me really feel very good. You know. And I tell you another thing, which is a little bit evil side of me. So there was this interrogator. She was so obsessed with my case. You know, the guard called, called her tons of fun because she was on the heavier side of the scale. And she was so obsessed, like, with my case. And she always believed I'm a bad guy. And then this journalist asked me to, to talk to her. I said, no problem. And then she talks to me, and then she said, I just want you to, uh, to answer one of my questions. I said, no, I don't have to answer any of your questions. This is not interrogation room. He said, but yeah, you, you are, then you are not innocent. I said, I'm not claiming anything. I don't have to prove anything to you. So, and her like, you know, agitation really gives me some like satisfaction because, <laughs> because <laughs> she, she couldn't come with peace. And I, I just want to be friend with her and I want to move on, but she wouldn't, she wouldn't. But after so many years in Guantanamo Bay, she wouldn't move forward. And I found out either way, I will be happy. If you, are, if you want to open your heart and be my friend, I will be your friend. If you want to stuck in Guantanamo Bay, it's fine with me too. Because like the journalist was saying, why don't you answer? I said, because I don't want to. I want to be in charge of when to give an answer and not to give an answer. And I, she's her, I told her, it's fine to think I'm a not, not a good guy. But as long as you don't torture me, that's fine with me. And today you are not going to torture me because we are 5,000 miles apart, kilometers, kilometers about 3,000 miles. And it felt good, honestly. Well, you're exercising your freedom. After all that time where you didn't have your freedoms, you weren't free to choose your own actions and your own agency, and you are. 
I think even the most virtuous amongst us is still at the mercy of our biology, right? We can't get rid of the desire for a little bit of let- retribution, even if it's a little snipe here and there, you know, a verbal game, whatever it might be. I have a friend who said, uh, thinking about what you were talking about there, about the fact that your captors, some of them couldn't release, they couldn't relinquish their anger and their distaste. And he says that anger is like a virus. So it's been passed from person to person Someone was angry and then they've displaced that anger onto somebody else and they've displaced that anger onto somebody else. And it takes an incredibly strong person to be a bookend, you know, to be the end of a bracket, to stop that and to say, I don't know who you got it from and I don't know who gave it to you and I don't know who gave it to them, but I'm not going to decide to pass it on. I'm going to be the end of this anger. So beautiful, Chris. So beautiful. I learned a very good lesson today. This is something I will not forget. And this is so helpful to know it consciously. You know that you need to stop it right there because it's your responsibility, like paying it forward, kind of. This is beautiful, honestly. Tell me about your situation now. My situation? So... I'm trying to pick up the pieces and I'm trying to be happy and I'm trying to help as many people as possible in my life, you know, paying it forward. I have on the civil side, I, I'm married, I have a child by the name of Ahmed, he's two years old. My family lives in Germany, I'm still trying to join them, but the stigma of Guantanamo Bay is still like, still like uh, chasing me. And uh, I'm trying to promote my movie. And I was invited by Benedict Cumberbatch, all of the crew, but I couldn't attend because the UK denied my visa. And uh, this all the stigma of Guantanamo Bay because they have this circular argument if you had been to Guantanamo Bay, you must deserve to be in Guantanamo Bay. And I completely understand like that the security forces like in a democracy, they have the sacred job to protect the people. You know, I understand that completely. And I understand that people commit violence for many reasons. One of them is ideological reason. But I just want the people in your country and in the West to understand that my family and my friends in Mauritania, they just want the same thing that you want, you and your family want. They want better jobs, better life. They want peace. They want longer life, better healthcare system. That's what we talk about. We don't sit and think about how to hurt people we don't know in the United Kingdom. We don't think about that. We understand, you know, we are, you are doing better than us. You know, being a free country for a very long time, it's a very good thing. We still fight for the most basic freedoms in this part of the world. And instead of your leaders, like encouraging, like authoritarian regimes, 
we want them to encourage more democracy, more freedom, so that we could be like, uh, like you have the same freedom. So I work for that. The rest of my life, I work for freedom. I don't want my son to be kidnapped. I don't want my son to be hurt. I want him to live a free life, you know, where he could choose where to go, what to do, you know, without fear from retribution because he has different opinion or the government thinks that he's a bad guy. I work a lot on human rights and I do webinars and I'm trying to be, you know, just to lead like a good life, a happy life, welcoming everyone, not caring about political colors or political ideologies. Man, the world is so much of a better place for having you back in it. I adore your message. I think that the peace and the wisdom and the serenity that you bring to a situation that's still cursed with all of the stuff that you went through is it's mind-blowing it's absolutely mind-blowing and i i want everybody that's listening to think about the challenges that they have in their life and about the things that they're resentful for about their housemate that didn't take the bins out last night or about that guy that always parks in their parking space at work or my coffee's a little bit cold or whatever it might be you know these things or the people that scorned them in the past. I have chips on my shoulder. I still have chips on my shoulder from teachers in school or from the way that other kids spoke to me or all of this sort of stuff. If you are able to let go of the situation and the experiences that you've been through, there is no excuse for why someone like me living in the life that I have in the country that I have with the politics that we are fortunate to have. You think about the politics. Think about how how vehement and aggressive and forthcoming and self-righteous people are in America and the UK about our our political system, about the fact that someone wants a slightly different type of tax on the on companies, income tax or business tax to another person. And again, we compare all of this with what it is that you went through. The contrast effect is such a powerful incentive when we're exposed to the best of everybody else's life on the internet and on social media every day. It's very easy to forget the normal blessings that we have, the ability to go to the bathroom without being watched, the ability to go to sleep in a dark room that's the right temperature, your freedoms, the fact that you can see your family, that you can see your mother when you want, how you want. Um, Man, the world's a significantly better place for having you back in it, and I'm very, very glad that you're here. Thank you so much, Chris. You are a very lovely person, and your message is a, mess- a very beautiful message. And I'm a better person for have- having talked to you today and having be- been your uh, guest. And we're going to see each other. I'm going to go there and bring down the house. I love it, man. In a positive way. I love it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Careful, careful about saying that, okay? Um, (laughs) 
God, it started again. Uh, the Mauritanian, everybody needs to go and check it out. It is available free to stream on Amazon Prime if you've got it. Also, your book will be linked in the show notes below. Man, this has been outstanding. Thank you so much for your time Thank today, you brother. So much. I have another book that came out in February by the name Ahmed and Zarga. Is a novel, a short novel about Bedouin life. I'm going to send you the link. I love it. And that's about camels, right? Yes. Yeah, you know about it already. And don't you worry. I know about it. I've done Thank my research. Mohamedou, man, I hope to see you in the UK very soon. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. Thank you, brother. <laughs>